and he's like got a wife and three kids, some of which are troublemakers. I'm not going to say which ones. Uh, Eva, <laughs> not just no, not Eva. You're not the one. Mamani uh, uh, and Anea, uh, and uh, soon to be fourth child is on the route. Right? How you feeling about that? Notice I asked him to preach before the fourth child rather than after the fourth child. We just thought that would just made sense. But, but Ben has a love for Jesus, a love for his word. He's been great to have as part of our elders team. And uh, what a treat to have him here this morning. Let's, uh, let's give uh, Ben a hand today. Good morning. Can you hear me? All right, great. Like Derwin said, I'm one of the elders here at Hillside, and it is such a blessing to be here this morning. God's word is always good news, isn't it? Yeah. Today we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, and I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5. If you'd like to follow along, we have Bibles at the back. Just raise your hand, and an usher will get one to you. I think the words will be on the screen as well. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Can we take a moment just to pray before we look at the sermon? Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Because in your word, we find everything that we need for life and for godliness. Father, we ask that your spirit would rest upon this place this morning so that we will have the strength not only to hear your word, but to do your word, so that we'll profit from them. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I told my daughters that I'll be speaking this morning, and Amani, Derwin, the one Derwin was picking on, said, Oh, great, Daddy. You should make fun of Derwin. (laughs) That was the only comment I got. Nothing about what are you speaking on or anything. It was just make fun of Derwin. Get back at him for what he did to you at the elders' retreat. So I swore an oath. No, I didn't. um, But speaking of daughters, one of the most remarkable things about having three girls under the age of 10 is how much talking goes on. (laughs) 
It's, it's unbelievable. It really is. <laughs> it really is. And, and the hardest part of the talking are the questions. Most of the time, I just pretend that there's another male in the house who goes by daddy, and I just ignore almost everything they say. But every once in a while, you get a question that just causes you to stop and to think about what they're asking. And questions have the ability to do that, don't they? They enable us to see things from a completely different perspective. And that's what I hope to do today, just ask the kind of questions that an eight-year-old would ask about this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The first question is this, who is speaking to us? Who is it? Jesus, yes, but who is he? The Bible says in, in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That all things were created by him. And then we read in Revelation 21 that he who sits upon the throne says, Behold, I make all things new again. It is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the wisdom behind all creation and the ultimate destiny of everything he is the one that somehow we find in the middle of history at the side of a mountain saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It is God himself who is talking to us. And what is the most important thing on God's mind as far as his will revealed to us is, we've been talking about this for two weeks now. It is a story of how man fell and how God is coming to renew and redeem everything. This is the most important thing on his mind. And I think we need to keep this in mind as we look at this particular verse. Otherwise, we might end up interpreting what Jesus is saying too narrowly. This is about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So let us look at the words themselves. Jesus begins with the word blessed. It's such a grand opening. Blessed are those. Supremely fortunate, happy, well-off, divinely favored, uniquely privileged. Blessed. Imagine that if I said to you, let's walk over to the West Wing. I want to show you some really blessed people some uniquely privileged people, what would you expect to see? People who are celebrating, joyful, full of praise maybe? I think at a very minimum, you'd expect to see people who are content at a minimum. Because I said to you, let's go see some really blessed people. But then we, we see what follows. He says, blessed are those who mourn, who grieve passionately. Seriously? So if we continue with that example, imagine that we go over to the West Wing. I swing the doors open and I say, here you go. And you see people crying, grieving, praying, 
tears streaming down their faces. And I'm like, here they are. What would you think? Let's assume for a moment that you actually are not a Christian. And I'm like, come on, I'm going to show you what you have to look forward to. (laughs) And I'm like, here you go. Ben, I'm sorry, I'm not that interested. And I say, wait, wait, just, just wait a minute. But Jesus says these guys are blessed. And you might say to me, well, what world does he live in? And that would be exactly the right question to ask. What world does he live in that he would declare people who are in a state of mourning to be blessed? He lives in the kingdom of God. And there's something upside down about that kingdom, isn't there? What can we observe about our experience from mourning? Now, this is just to think about grieving. Usually we grieve when something that is significant, something of significant value is missing from us in the present, isn't it? It could be something that we had in the past that we no longer have. Maybe it's a loved one who has passed on and they're no longer with us. Or maybe it is the vitality of of youth that is no longer with us right now, and so we grieve. It could be a relationship, like a friendship, that we have lost, and it causes us to grieve. Or it could be something that we anticipate, and we don't have it right now, and we can feel that vacuum. It could be maybe we're looking to God like Hannah, looking for Samuel, and so at the temple we're just grieving we're pouring out our hearts to God. So it could be something that we had or something we look forward to. Either way, there is something significant of value that is missing in the present, and that causes us to grieve. We're going to park that thought because we'll come back to it in a moment. But let's continue to look at Jesus' words. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. The word comforted, if you look at the the root of it, is a concatenation of two words, come, with, fortis, strength. And as Daryl Johnson puts it, they will be strengthened by being with. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be strengthened by being with. And here's my eight-year-old question. With whom or with what? Comforted, they will be comforted. And what Jesus is talking about here, just the history of the word, is the kind of strength you feel maybe if you're playing on a sports team. And, you know, you have people sort of encouraging one another. And before you know it, everyone is on fire and, you know, things move from there. Or like soldiers going into battle, encouraging one another. 
You're in the company of other people who are sort of emboldening you to move forward. And Jesus is saying that those who mourn will know that kind of strength. And as we know, comforted is a verb, and the Greek form of which is parakleo. And usually when we're comforted, we're comforted by something or by someone. Right? It's, it's, maybe it's a piece of knowledge. Or maybe someone walks into our lives at that moment and, and, and we feel comforted. It doesn't appear out of thin air. And that's the comforter, that thing which brings us comfort. And that's a noun, the Greek form of which is paraclete, the one we know to be the Holy Spirit. So let us look at these words again. Blessed are those who grieve passionately because they will know the strength that comes from being with the Holy Spirit. That is good news. What can we observe from being comforted? So usually when we're comforted, it doesn't always mean that we've received what is missing, does it? If you think about maybe someone passing, that person doesn't come back to life in order for us to receive comfort. It's not necessarily about the outcome. When we're comforted, what happens is maybe when we were grieving, the grief felt this big and we felt this small. Like it was going to completely consume us. But when we're comforted, our strength feels this big and the vacuum feels this small. You know, think of Jesus in Gethsemane and he's, the Bible says he's sweating blood and God sends an angel to comfort him. The work still had to be done. The cross was still before him. But his strength, his ability to do that work was magnified. So comfort really is about shifting from a position of feeling like we're going to be overwhelmed and swallowed by something to a position of strength because the Holy Spirit is now with us. That thing may be resolved, or it may not. Either way, we have the strength to get through it. All right. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Here's another eight-year-old question. Blessed are those who mourn about what? Do we just fill in the blank? About the Ferrari I don't have? I don't know. I think when we think about mourning, we think and what comes to mind is bereavement, right? At first, it's bereavement. And it makes sense. Jesus, you know, was a very compassionate guy. And, um, you know, at the side, Lazarus' graveside, we heard, uh, we read that Jesus wept. 
And, you know, we're, f- we're familiar with the story of the funeral procession where Jesus is moved by compassion. And, um, you know, because of the widow who, has, who had lost her son. And that, that might seem to be the interpretation here. But if you l- read the other Beatitudes, it doesn't quite work. Not completely anyway. Because in the other Beatitudes, we, we see room for us to be engaged Like, blessed are those who hunger, who thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who show mercy. Blessed are those who keep peace. But bereavement is something that sort of, it happens to us. We don't actively seek to be bereaved. So, bereavement, even though it might be included, doesn't cover everything that Jesus is talking about here. There must be more to what he's saying. And I think that if we look at the promise that comes with this state of heart, it might help us to understand what Jesus is referring to here. It is the promise of the Holy Spirit himself. That's huge. That's more than bereavement. In John chapter 16, um, verses 8 to 10, Jesus says this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Sin, righteousness, judgment, that the comfort of the Holy Spirit pertains to these three things, other things, but Jesus calls out these three particular things. And so it gives us a clue as to what we might mourn about if if the Holy Spirit is bringing comfort in these areas. So I would just like us to spend a little bit of time just looking at this. So Jesus is saying that we are blessed, that as Christians, it is our unique privilege to be pierced with sorrow by the unbelief of others. Friends of friends, my wife told me this story, who are not Christians decided to send their daughter to a Christian school. And as you would expect, she started to learn about Jesus. And she would come home with these pieces of knowledge about Christ that um, the parents had to deal with because they weren't really Christians. And so one day she came home and she said, asked her dad, Daddy, did you know that Jesus died on the crosswalk? And uh, the dad, who was not a Christian, had the responsibility of explaining what actually happened. And it's a funny story, but there's a flip side to it. Jesus says that as Christians, we cannot be unaffected by the fact that our loved ones do not know him. That we cannot be unaffected when our children do not 
keep the faith that we passed on to them. When our neighbors don't think about him, except when they're perhaps considering if their kids should go to a Christian private school or another private school based on the quality of education. Jesus is saying that we should actually be pierced with sorrow. We should grieve over the fact that there are cities and states and entire countries that do not believe in him. We should be affected when there seems to be an effort to systematically eradicate the knowledge of Christ from many spheres of our life. That these things should affect us. It shouldn't be a problem that is just out there. And what is the comfort that the Holy Spirit offers to us? He says that I, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of that sin of unbelief. And we have all been convicted because it is usually where we begin to turn our lives around. The Holy Spirit is saying that I will convict people that Jesus really is the Lord. And that's comfort. If you're engaged in praying for someone you want to come to Christ, it is comfort to know that the Holy Spirit will do that work. He's also saying that we are blessed when we grieve passionately about the inadequacy of our human nature. Our sins, our iniquities, you know, when, when we lie and we steal and we're greedy and we gossip and we do those really small things, that we cannot be so used to sin that it doesn't concern us, that we just do it without stopping, without being affected at all. It should grieve us. It should actually pierce us with sorrow. It should also grieve us when we see the influence of sin in our lives. It's so persistent. It wants to corrupt fundamental things about human nature, sexuality, marriage, work, how we relate with money. Now, when we see these things, it should affect us. We're not one of those people who say, you know, impose on Jesus' grace, let us sin that grace may abound. Let's just keep going. No, we're not one of those people. And we're not one of those people who deny that sin exists so that we don't have to deal with that fact. What is the comfort that the Holy Spirit offers to us? He says that Jesus Christ was delivered up for our sins. And he was raised for our justification. And we do not see him anymore because he is seated in heaven. Therefore, his righteousness is enough for us. He comes to convict us of the righteousness of Christ for our sake. That, too, is good news. And finally, he comes to convict of judgment. So what do we mourn about? Christ is here saying that as Christians... 
We are supremely fortunate. We're favored. It is our unique privilege to grieve over the influence of darkness in our world. And boy, there's a lot of it. He says that we should grieve, we should be pierced with sorrow when millions of children die of hunger. When women sell their bodies to earn a living. When men are enlisted in wars started by egotistic tyrants. That we, of all people, should be pierced with sorrow that Boko Haram and ISIS are household names. That every week we hear, or nearly every week, of mass shooters and suicide bombers. That fentanyl is sweeping through our cities, claiming lives like a plague. People dying of drugs, drug addictions and overdose. That we cannot be unaffected when these things happen. Hurricanes and famine and typhoons claiming lives and property. Jesus wants us to open up our hearts to actually feel the pain. And what is the comfort that the Holy Spirit offers? He says, to convict the world of judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What does that mean? How can that be comforting? Holy, the Holy Spirit is saying here that if the mastermind behind all of this has already been judged, then as we grieve, we can be sure that those who were supposed to take care of those children who die of hunger, that those pimps and those handlers who profit from prostitutes, that those oppressive leaders that we read about, that those ISIS members and those Boko Haram leaders, the fentanyl dealers, that even the evil powers behind natural disasters, that every single one of them will stand before his throne of judgment and they will give an account of what has happened, what they have done. It seems harsh, but that is comfort because sometimes it just seems like people keep getting away with things. John Dryden, who lived about 400 years ago, he, he's a poet and, and um, a playwright, and he said these words, and they continue to echo through the centuries. He said, virtue in distress and vice in triumph make atheists of mankind. When we see that evil just keeps getting away, that people become atheists, they stop believing in God. And in fact, um, reading Steve Jobs, the, the, the founder of Apple, his biography a few years ago, he actually stopped believing in God because he saw pictures of children starving. He went up to his Sunday school teacher and said, can God see this? And she said, yes. He said, I don't want to serve a God who can see this and doesn't do anything about it. So what Jesus is saying here is the same things that cause other people to stop believing in him, that if we'll open up our hearts to feel the pain 
of those things, that we will feel the strength of the Holy Spirit and it will actually bring us closer to God. It is our unique privilege to grieve over these things. And you know, it seems as though our grieving and the comfort that the Holy Spirit brings, that like the work He does, it's almost like the breathing in and the breathing out of a living organism, that it goes together. And somehow, as it happens, the kingdom of God comes closer and closer and closer. That's, that's, that's the sense we get as we, as we spend time with this. This time I'll ask a six-year-old question, not an eight-year-old. How should we mourn? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But how? How do we do it? Here's a story. It's a weird one. I was born in a place called Benin City in Nigeria. And uh, Fridays are the days allocated to funerals in Benin. And on Fridays from 10 a.m. onwards, you can't get anything done. Like the streets are blocked with people dressed in black. Cars, processions everywhere, like you have to go through the back streets to get anywhere. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> they must have a really high death rate because every Friday in Benin is mayhem. And the funniest thing is that people have started, or at least when I was there, you would have people who made this their social lives. On Fridays, they had an outfit. They had outfits, black outfits. And the way you would do pub crawls, they would do funeral crawls. Going from funeral to funeral to funeral. It was a social thing for them. And I think that just shows what happens with human nature. Even a sentiment, an emotion like grieving, can somehow become perverted. So how do we do it so that we don't end up like that? You know, we take, take pride in how well we grieve. You, you grieve really well. Oh, I saw you that day. You, you do it so well. How do we do it? I was reading through the Bible, you know, um, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, even Jesus, just trying to get a sense of, of what happens when we grieve, and found three themes. The first is this, that we grieve in relation with God. God is not asking us to take on something and walk away and go do it by ourselves somewhere. It seems to be that he's saying we should grieve in relation with him. He, it's something between the two of us. We don't exempt him from that process. When we open up our hearts to, to the pain, we don't exclude him from that. In Nehemiah, when he heard about the wall, this is what he said. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For days I mourned, 
and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We do it before him. We're not trying to carry the burden by ourselves. The other thing is this. We recognize that God is righteous. He is not to blame. He really isn't. Of all the parties involved in the picture, he is the one who is righteous. To continue with Nehemiah, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have not obeyed your commands and decrees, the laws you gave to your servant Moses. As you read the stories of people grieving in the Bible, there is always an acknowledgement of God's righteousness that he is not the one to blame. And I think that if we're going to open up our hearts to pain, we're going to have to remember that God is not to blame. And finally, there is always an element of seeking God's grace. Again, that's relevant because sorrow is the kind of thing that with time we can make a nice outfit out of and just wear it everywhere. And so God is saying, or at least from these prayers, we see that there's always an element of grace, of seeking God. Nehemiah said, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. We're relating with God. We recognize His righteousness. And finally, we are always seeking good from Him as we grieve. There's always, these three things are, are always present as you read through all the prayers of people who grieve in the Bible, even up to Job. It's always there. Maybe a nine-year-old question this time. <laughs> Why should we even bother with any of this? It's a tall order. I want you to open up your heart to pain so that you will know the strength that comes from being with the Holy Spirit. Well, can't we just skip the pain part and just give me that strength anyway? Like, if you really want me to be strong, just give me the strength and let's get on with it. Why bother at all? I'd like to propose maybe two things. The first is this. Because Christians have sensitive hearts. We've been saying that. Darwin has, has said it in the last two sermons. This is about the state of our hearts. And God says in Ezekiel 36, that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It is evidence that we are God's children when we are actually affected by these things. Ralph um, Waldo Emerson said that once our minds are stretched by an idea, 
they never return to their original dimensions. I'd like to say that once our hearts have been stretched by a divine ache, they never return to their original dimensions. That's what this is about. And I think some of us here know what, what I'm talking about. Because God has placed in our hearts aches and grieves over things, over people, over cities. And our hearts have never been the same afterwards. The second thing, reason I think why we bother with all of any of this, is that it's just a natural consequence of living in the gap. It really is. And what do I mean by a gap? We are those people caught in the in-between. We live on earth and we're part of God's kingdom. When other people see what's going on in the world, they say, oh my God, man has failed man. Everything is just going to nothing. The future is so bleak. The end is near. There's no hope. Like, we're done. We're done. This is all so terrible. But Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we, of all people on the earth, we should proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the ones who say, yes, it looks bad, but there's a more glorious future waiting. We don't check out. We don't step away. We don't declare that everything is hopeless. We're the ones who say, but hold on. There was once a time in the Garden of Eden when everything was not like this. And there will be a time when everything will not be like this. The Bible says that there will be a time where the knowledge of Christ covers the entire earth like the waters cover the sea. That there will be a time when sin does not take possession of this body. Because we will throw off immortality. And we will throw off mortality and put on immortality. What is not corruptible. The Bible says that there will be a time where the prince of this world and everything he does will not be present on this earth anymore. And so we live in the gap. We know, we have seen this vision. Christians have received this vision. And so we mourn that it is not here yet. We are the only ones with an actual basis to mourn that the kingdom of God is not yet here. Daryl Johnson says that we are God's aching visionaries. It is so appropriate. We are God's aching visionaries. And here is even better news. <clears throat> that our hope will not fail. 
that our hope will not be put to shame because God has sent His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who comforts us, the Bible says, is also the deposit that God has made to guarantee our inheritance until the final redemption, the final renewal of all things. The Holy Spirit who comforts us in our grief is the evidence that this future that God has promised will come to pass. And so even though the vision may tarry, even though it might seem like it's taken a long time, God says, wait for it. Wait for it. It will come to pass. Again, Jesus' words, blessed are those who mourn, who open up their hearts to pain, for they will know the strength that comes from being with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will be their guarantee that Jesus will make all things new again. And all God's people say, Amen.